Have you heard all the fuss about user-generated content for games in recent years? If your game supports UGC or mods, it can significantly boost its virality and discovery, which is why we're so excited to catch up with Mod.io founder Scott Rice-Manis for our latest podcast. Scott was also the founder of ModDB and IndieDB and has been involved in the mod scene for more than 20 years. His new VC-backed company, which helps run cross-platform mods for games like SnowRunner, Totally Accurate Battle Simulator, Deep Rock Galactic and Skater XL, is doing some interesting work to make mods available multi-platform. So let's hear all about the benefits and pitfalls of making modding a discovery engine for your games. I'm Simon Carlos, founder of Game Discover Co, and this is the Tales from Game Discovery Land podcast. Okay, so I'm here with Scott. Uh, how's it going, Scott? You having a good day? In, going well, thank you. Just wrapped up a successful trip to GDC, and uh, it's great to be talking today. Awesome. And yeah, we've certainly known each other for a while, uh, and we did some work together back in the day on things like the Indie Royale bundle, but obviously I'm very interested to hear about your latest project, Mod.io. I was looking at the um, progression, and, and you noted on your blog that you had 12 million mods downloaded in 2019, 70 million in 2020, and 208 million in 2021. So clearly, this service, which provides mod support in a kind of centralized way for a bunch of different games, is, is going quite well. Can you talk about what particular games your growth has been led by? I'm interested to hear, like, what's really, what are the, say, three or four games that you feel like people are really, really getting going on Mod.io with? Certainly. So, so mod, Mod.io and modding in general has typically spanned many genres of games, whether it's uh, open world RPGs like your uh, Skyrims and your Cyberpunks through to simulation games like Fight it's got a We always say it's got a bus, train, car or plane in it that's suitable um, right through to the multiplayer first-person shooters and competitive games like that where just customising your avatar or changing the level can have a big impact on gameplay. For us, our growth has been driven by probably all of those genres, but in particular simulation titles. For whatever reason, we've got a lot of um, truck and bus uh, and car-related games uh, on the service and... They're just extremely popular with the players because once you've tried the five to ten vehicles available to you, naturally you want something that's faster, bigger, got more wheels, uh, whatever it might be. So, so they've they've really driven it, but it, it's definitely a diverse bunch because we've got games like Totally Accurate Battle Simulator. They kind of break the mold, and they're just physics simulators that people are dropping in characters, and they've submitted 1.5 million pieces of content and driven a lot of sort of uh, downloads through their through their life cycle. So, so can you talk about the broad type of mods that uh, you're seeing? Obviously, I'm interested. I think people have different opinions of mods based on what they think mods means, and it's everything from cosmetics to kind of total conversions. Can you talk about the different classes of mod that you often see? The lines have really been blurred the last few years because historically, and, and when I got started in modding with ModDB back in 2002, mods were all total conversions. There really was no such thing as cosmetic mods back then. And so that's where you got your, your Counter-Strikes, your uh, Dotas, uh, and that type of content emerged from that scene because the only way to really ship a game as a amateur or indie developer was to mod an existing title and create something new out of it. Fast forward to the last sort of 10 years, 
and modding's become, I would say, much more accessible, uh, somewhat more cosmetic. Uh, and that's been driven by a few factors. The first has been that digital distribution makes these sort of smaller um, mods easily accessible for players. Jumping through hoops to download Counter-Strike was something that players did and justified. But jumping through hoops just to download a new skin for your character didn't necessarily make as much sense. And so the advent of and the rise of Workshop uh, that brought that content in game and make it made it available to the players at a press of a button, which we're also doing at Modrayo, has really opened up the door to sort of cosmetic and, and sort of more simplified mod types. And people often call them UGC. At us, for us, it's all the same. Whether that content's drag and drop and in-game and UGC and something that's made just through a few clicks of the mouse, or it's content that's made in a level editor or requires uh, 3D modeling knowledge and skills, we still consider that mod and UGC and, and, and blur it all together. And the games that generally perform the best sort of recognize that too and try to make modding approachable, but also allow for a really deep dynamic range of creation. So if you want to go deep and really want to go advanced, that's available to you today. So it's a bit of a mixed bag and there's just so much more content that players can make and games can enable them to make. Yeah, and I was looking at some of your top titles and I did notice they had total conversions in them, but they also had skins as well. So I could see that there was quite a lot of difference there. Uh, does it also matter? I mean, obviously the popularity of mods depends on how people display it and how integral it is to gameplay. So do you think there's just some types of games where mods are more integral to gameplay than others? There definitely is. We generally say that games that have a very strong storyline or narrative or very strong art style, it's difficult to work mods into that because one, the mod creators are sort of going to impact that style, stylized approach that you've created for your title. Whereas games that are multiplayer, naturally people really want to try new levels once you've played the first five you know, gameplay modes in the game you, you want new levels for it that you can you know, experience multiplayer on or you want cosmetic skins new weapons and, and items in the world because that's what allows you to personalize your player experience and i guess stand out relative to other players so that genre really goes well and then it's the really open world rpg or simulation games that then also skew in a single player direction where People want to change the skybox. They want to um, you know, make new graphics and HD pack-up updates or just change um, the objects in the world where it's definitely more imaginative and uh, imagination-driven creation. And because the scope's so large in those games, mods tend to lend themselves really well to it. Yeah, and it definitely seems like I was quite impressed with the range of titles you've got on there. Um, I guess one question I had is kind of like, you know, how much maintenance, like in order to set this up, obviously one thing devs are always thinking about is how complicated is this going to be? And so maybe you can talk about the most complicated that you've seen and the least complicated. There's a few things that you need to consider here from the perspective of a game developer. One is the actual implementation of mod support, i.e. what content are you going to allow your players to create in your game? And so for some titles, that might mean they're literally just say, sharing save files and it's just drag and drop gameplay and then whatever they remix and create, they save and they submit and share as a piece of content. So that's sort of more like your space engineers and your totally accurate battle simulator type titles where the game is almost the creation. You build your own spaceship, you share it. Um, the siege is in the same boat. You build your own sort of machine uh, and you share it. 
uh, or tabs, you build your own little characters in the character editor and you share it. So in those titles, the focus for the studio is how do they build those editors and um, make them work. So because it's core of the gameplay, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of effort that's gone into that. Then you have the opposite end of the spectrum, and that's sort of more like your insurgencies or the snow runners that we've worked with, where the creation happens outside of the gaming experience. And as a result of that, the knowledge and skills that the creators require is, is a lot different. So in, in the case of SnowRunner, there's, I think there's like a 40 to 50 page PDF document on how to make levels and vehicles. And that's where the community started with uh, a, a deeply technical guide that involves a, a lot of different skill sets that's required. And I, at first glance for someone, it is daunting. Like it's, there's a lot to it. And yet there's been, I think at this point, over 1,500 vehicles submitted. And so that's a classic example of never underestimate, I suppose, the power and talent uh, and the resource, resourcefulness of your creative community because with very little, they can figure out a lot. And in some ways, that actually leads to the most emergent and interesting creations because you've given them that scope and that flexibility. You haven't necessarily defined what they can and can't do, and they'll figure out ways to you know, push boundaries and do really interesting things. So it, that definition is really up to the game studio to decide uh, and then to put that policy into motion. But the advice that I always like to provide is just never underestimate what your creative community can do. Because if developers could figure out how to reverse engineer Grand Theft Auto to add multiplayer mode or Euro Truck Simulator to add multiplayer mode, like, you know, that's pretty complicated tasks that they've done. Uh, chances are they can probably mod your game if you give them the, the opportunity to. Um, the second part to this question then is how do you solve the distribution piece and making that content accessible? Uh, and that's sort of where we uh, come in as a service at Mod.io. We provide plugins for Unity uh, and Unreal and an SDK for other engines. And our goal is always to lower the barriers to entry to support custom content, not just on PC, but also on consoles by having those tools be as drop-in a solution as they can be, complete with UIs and everything. Okay. Like our goal over a longer period of time and the word that we like to use internally is we want to help mods feel official, feel legitimate, like they're part of the game, they're a first-class citizen, and the level of polish and presentation and accessibility for players of all types is scaled up. So every design decision that we make that goes into those is, is taking one more step in that direction. And I'd say that we're certainly not entirely there yet, but we're getting close with every iteration um, and every learning and lesson that we take from developers. And we've had studios... <clears throat> that have got up and running start to finish with botting in less than a week. We've had one studio do it during a game jam, 48 hours in Unity. So it's possible, but there is lift. In terms of the tools you provide and your competitors, I mean, obviously, um, Steam Workshop is the most obvious one that comes to mind for me. But I wondered, like, when you see other people who are providing similar modding functionality, can you explain maybe who you think your competitors are and how they do things differently? Yeah, so there's there's a number of different ways that modding is supported in games. There's the unofficial communities that have always existed. So that's your ModDB, which is something that I started 20 years ago. There's Nexus Mods, which got started around a similar time frame. Uh, and then there's a number of other communities like that, that essentially that's what gets used when the game studio doesn't provide any official support but there's players still modifying the game. So they find and set up a community where they can share and other players can find and download that content. So that's sort of what we consider, I guess, where modding has sort of come from, where it's 
there's a few hoops of players have to jump through. They have to exit the game uh, and then download and install that content manually or with the assistance of a, of a launcher and installer. Where modding then moved to is, and, and where Steam took it to with their workshop solution, is an SDK that game developers can integrate. So this is probably the primary competition for us in that Steam provides a tool that automates that installation and developers just have to do the plumbing and connect in the Steamworks Workshop SDK. Bit of a, bit of a mouthful, that one. Mod.io is the same. So the plumbing is very similar and the outcome is also identical where players can now access mods in-game via the in-game menu. Uh, they can browse content, uh, they can click subscribe and then the SDK behind the scenes automatically puts that mod in the folder for the game to then detect and run. And I suppose where Mod.io diverges from Workshop is that we're pushing cross-platform and we really want to enable mods uh, beyond just PC on mobile, VR and console devices. And we've seen uh, great numbers as it's still a very new area of gaming uh, when that happens, as well as allowing studios to set up their own communities, get closer with their players and their creators so they can identify the type of content that their that their consumers want um, through that interaction that they now have um, sort of control over and also really building their brand uh, and everything else. So there's like three or four levels that we differ that are, that are quite important for us and for studios that want to do more with modding. Outside of that, there are certainly um, like Ovals looking to do that, uh, and they're still building that product. You have sort of cloud-like services like Excelbyte and um, Playfab from Microsoft that do sort of very rudimentary UGC frameworks. So you can kind of get the plumbing in, but you've still got to build the house and the community and all the interfaces on top of it. Uh, I think this is an area within gaming that's of significant focus. We've obviously all seen the, the metaverse emergence and whilst that's not exactly what we're trying to do, the success of Roblox and other titles um, kind of validated that this is an important area within gaming. Almost every title is trying to work on their player engagement um, and, and their content strategies. So it's very likely that there's going to be a, a lot more ways to approach this problem in the future too that, that we haven't even considered yet. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned console because I think I saw somewhere in your materials that more than half of your downloads are on console if you just look at uh, individual mod items. So that's something that people don't always think about because they think about PC, I think, as the, as the main modding area. And obviously, I'm presuming in some cases, these mods are like vehicles or maybe designs uh, for games rather than total conversions but can you talk about like how extreme does the console modding go obviously you can't just do arbitrary geometry into a uh, xbox version that works on pc right yeah there's certainly different rules that apply to the console platforms and every platform applies its own rules we exist to demystify that and make it easy for studios to tackle uh, and as a result of that you get different outcomes what we've noticed, uh, which potentially was surprising to us, but in hindsight, probably not, uh, was that on PC at least, modding whilst I still think it's extremely early days and it's in probably less than 100 games that every 100 games that releases is probably only one that does any kind of modding and you can see. So it's still early days for modding on PC, but at the same time, it's, it's something that players have grown up with and been used to and had exposure to over a long period of time. If you look at consoles, on the other hand, you could literally count on one hand the number of games that provide this functionality to their players. And, and, and it's been your really big titles. So it's your Skyrims that have got cross-platform mod support. It's your Minecrafts. 
uh, your Robloxes and um, your Microsoft Flight Simulators. So there's only really a very small pocket of games that have it. So when we helped titles like SnowRunner and um, uh, also Tabs and also Space Engineers and Skater XL and others launch on PlayStation, Xbox uh, and beyond, being such a unique selling point and so early to market with this functionality, the consumer response was really quite insane where uh, the number of downloads and content consumption of those players was almost up to five times their PC counterparts. And I think it's because it's such a unique feature. Uh, it is, well, there's a lot of reasons. It's such a unique feature for subscription services like Games Pass. It's a really good way to retain players um, in those titles without and retain subscribers without necessarily having to ship more content. And so, yeah, ultimately, I think just the players were super responsive to it. Also, some of the rules that the console systems apply actually appeared to be almost beneficial where on PC, in some of those titles, they allow all bonds. So any mod that gets submitted is instantly available for all players. <clears throat> where on consoles, they curate every, every week or month or whatever Cadence Studio wants to curate at onto those platforms. And as a result of that, that curation, where they validate that the mods work and then um, approve them for the console device, uh, it almost becomes an event that players look forward to and they know that all right, every week, SnowRunner has its mod drop on Xbox and PlayStation. We get to see the new, the, the new 10 mods that are coming to those devices. So it becomes almost like a season pass that's happen, happening weekly just due to the, the quality and quantity of content that's been made by the, the players that then drives a lot of engagement for that game. So I think there's a there's number of factors that are contributing to the, the numbers that we're seeing, but certainly very validating for us and exciting for the studios that have done it. Yeah, and it's been interesting for me to see because you know I I helped out a bit behind the scene on scene on on Descenders and Descenders is a title that at least on on the PC uses uses mod.io, but actually not on console because uh, that the uh, tracks being built haven't really been built with console polygon limits in mind. So what's ended up happening on Descenders is that the devs will go away and grab the best PC mods and then change them around a little bit and then directly put them into the Xbox and, and PlayStation versions of the game. So it's kind of a, a less slick version of what, what SnowRunner is doing, but it still really helped with the content and there's still regular drops uh, on console at that point. So it's good. It just isn't using the mod.io uh, framework on console in the end. So I guess I did have a question about mobile, which is I did notice that more mobile games in recent months are talking about um, mods or at least unique content. I saw that Supercell has set up a platform called Make, where they're trying to get people to make more skins for their games, I believe. So have you got very far into the mobile space yet? And what are your sort of thoughts on how that's going to go? Modding has historically been a PC Western game phenomenon, and it's uh, penetration into mobile markets, free-to-play markets, eastern markets uh, has hasn't really happened yet. Um, so for us, that's that's a really exciting opportunity and change that we see coming because there's not a mobile studio that we can talk to that isn't thinking about this in some form or another and considering what is their strategy and approach to this because. From my perspective, there's a few things that I, that I don't think studios are always aware of, and that is content creation doesn't have to happen on the device of consumption. Mod creators, if you've got a passionate player base, modding is a multiplier of success. And so there'll be a percentage of your users 
that see themselves more as creators than they do as consumers. When you enable this functionality, they'll figure out whatever you offer to do it. So in the Supercell case with their make program, people are making those characters in the game. They're using 3D editing software on PC and then Supercell then curates the, the best content officially into the next release of the title, uh, at which point the event ends. So I think we're, we're going to see over the next few years a massive rise in user-generated content on mobile because those games built entire business models around content and player engagement uh, and there's no better way to engage players and build a flywheel that can continue to grow and sort of be self-fulfilling than user-generated content. So, so the alignment's a lot, it makes a lot of sense. It's just that there is, it is complex. There's a lot more to consider. There's a lot more restrictions on those devices um, and things that you've got to do to implement it. So from our perspective, we've still been focused on that traditional gamer and that core gamer and the games that have UGC and mod sort of functionality in them today, or we think could be very suitable for UGC and mod support if they wanted to enable it. And so we're still focused on that market and we don't officially have our modding solutions set up. However, our platform is agnostic. There's absolutely no restrictions on how studios use it. So we've already seen a few smart titles that are on iOS and Android that have adapted our technology to work on those devices and uh, they've got content flowing through them and been available to the players. So we think that this is an area of the industry that's going to grow enormously um, because from my perspective, mobile is so much different from PC where if you ship a successful game, there's probably 30 clones of it on the app store within two months. Like it's, it's, it's incredible how quickly uh, the industry responds to it. And so I, I often wonder what happens if someone ships like a match three builder on iOS and then the players could come up with their own themes. So then they would have made the, the candy, the lemonade, the, the chocolates, goats, whatever it might be. And they'll come up with their own, all their own themes, animations, different gameplay modes, different progression systems. Uh, and I, I suspect the title, any title that successfully did that could have maybe created a lot less churn for themselves and a lot less of this copycat sort of phenomenon that happens. It's pure speculation. Um, of my own, but I often wonder what would have occurred had that been the case because, like, you know, and, and that's a really simple game that people would say is not suitable for modding at all. Like, why would you mod a match three game, right? The gameplay is so simple. And I would say, no, no, I actually, like, I think the application there does make a lot of sense. So, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting area of the market that is still extraordinarily early, and I think it'll be several years before we start to see much movement, but there will be a lot of movement once it starts. Talking of mobile reminded me of microtransactions, which reminded me to ask you about how you think this all works with monetization, because clearly some people are monetizing via cosmetics and mods are sometimes cosmetics. So uh, what do you say to people who talk to you about that? I suppose we kind of point to Roblox as an example of how it can be done well. Roblox launched their developer exchange in 2016, I believe it was, and that's the point at which creators could actually earn on the platform and growth really kicked off for them every year subsequently. And also what happened every year subsequently is their in-house content production, like the official content that the, their creators were making became less and less to the point where I think at the end of last year, they said that they do no in-house content production. It's entirely done by their players now. I would like to believe that we'll see similar trends in gaming once this becomes uh, it's player accepted and it's done in the right way 
uh, and it's also becomes accessible for studios to implement, um, whereby what they'll realize, and, and we've talked to a lot of studios about this and we've looked at our own metrics, the amount of content that can emerge from your creator community is upwards of five to 10 times of what you can produce in-house through your content production team. And the quality, depending on the tools you provide and the assistance you provide, and especially if there's monetary incentive, definitely trends towards matching or even exceeding what you could create in-house. And the originality always exceeds because modders are going to try to fill out, fill niches and address weird and wonderful things that the game studio may not have considered or thought of. So I believe that any game that approaches UGC um, monetization in the right way, it's not going to be an immediate impact for them. But over time, uh, that content, if presented right, if given the legitimacy and curation that it sort of deserves, will add to the bottom line for that studio and slowly start to displace the need and demand for in-house content to the point now where they, they can run almost user-generated content season passes, user-generated content, daily content drops, whatever. Whatever their monetization strategy is, they can start to apply those concepts, but with the creations from their community. And really, I think the reason why this hasn't occurred more and why Roblox is more of an outlier than the norm is because it's just a long way outside of what studios are comfortable and good at doing. They're great at shipping games, building the infrastructure and the systems to do reporting, compliance, tax, uh, and all of that on a global scale and package all up with community moderation and safety and, and everything else. That's a huge undertaking and none of that is game development work. And so once... And yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and it's been a little controversial sometimes if you've already had a modding scene out there to try and turn it paid, right? Because there was some issues with, I think, Skyrim tried to introduce paid modding and didn't go so well, if I recall. That's correct. There's, that's why I, I really emphasize there's ways to do this that are the right ways and there's ways to do it that's the wrong way. And for us, we see it as a, something that should be complementary and strengthen the player experience and not necessarily change the rules on the players which in the case of Skyrim, that's sort of unfortunately what happened, where I would say that's a community that absolutely loves content for that game, but suddenly having it all be monetized meant that there were certain conflicts there that, that arose. Had that not been the case and had this been something from day one in that title, I think we would have seen a vastly different outcome or had, had there been it been approached in a certain, you know, slightly different way, there would have been a different outcome too. So. Like my, I tip my hat to them trying, and uh, I think it's sort of the right step, but there's just probably a few more steps that need to be taken first, just in, and, and a few more rules that probably needed to exist uh, for it to happen. But the Games Pass and other subscription services pushing access to tons of players and different business models, I think it makes too much sense for a lot of studios to kind of ignore, and now's the time that players need to be educated and shown that user-generated content and monetization can be a really positive thing in terms of the quality and range of content that will be created as that scales up. In some ways, this is quite a different view for a core developer, though, because as you explained it, the extreme version is Roblox, and essentially Roblox is now a platform, it is not a... It is creative, but it is enabling creativity entirely in its user base. And for many developers, I think that's quite surprising because they're used to the concept that they're the font of creativity for games. So how do you think people reconcile this? Do you speak to people who are a little nervous about giving away control over creativity? Most people are nervous, especially if their business model is 
already content driven and also if they're used to having complete and utter control over their game and its direction the notion of letting go of that uh is is a really big step um history i would say has has almost always shown that your players are going to do interesting things they're also going to very occasionally do things that you won't want or doesn't align with your values or qualities that you set for yourselves at a studio so really you've just got to decide how you want to approach and handle and manage that and there's like five or six techniques that we use at mod.io to help address this and provide studios comfort whether it's uh like great just discoverability tools that automatically surface the good content reinforce good behavior and bury the bad right through to 24-7 community-based reporting and action systems that, that allow the community to control that um, through to complete moderation where you are in control of what is shown and available for your consumers um, at all times. So there's a lot of different ways you can address that to provide comfort and to ensure your strategy aligns. And there's a number of projects that we're working on at Mod.io in 2022 and beyond that will further reinforce that where we want to help studios set up a really close dialogue with their creative community so they can guide and help sort of almost assist in, in, in the, the direction that creators sort of take their game by running events and other mechanisms to sort of drive that. So, yeah, to, to answer that question, I think it all comes down to your strategy and every game strategy should be um, slightly different and we're happy to advise and provide our feedback on how we think or how we would at least approach um, modding in a particular title. Uh, for studios to take on board. In a related kind of area, how do you think companies think about legal liability? I've noticed that Roblox has a lot of arguably IP infringing stuff on it, and I think their approach is generally to use more of a DMCA-like approach. If anyone contacts us, we'll, we'll take it off. But obviously, very large companies don't tend to work like that. Do you think that's one reason why some of the largest companies have been more nervous about mods than they perhaps should have been? I would argue that Roblox is a very large company at uh, $40 billion plus market cap when they IPO'd. They're one of the biggest in the business. But yeah, DMCA and, and the ability for community to report content is the most important tool available to us. Like that's what the legal frameworks have sort of set and become industry norm across all systems. And so having a very rigid process in place that allows users in-game and via the web report content for IP and other reasons. And those reports then go into a dashboard and that dashboard is then actioned within a certain time frame by either the studio or us. Like they are the steps that must be followed to ensure compliance. And if you follow those steps, generally speaking, like we, we, we've certainly seen that to be the way that it's done on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and any other UGC platform that allows uh, people to submit content um, that they've created themselves uses that process. So, so we're no different. So it does work quite well. In terms of giving studios comfort, ultimately, I think that uh, like that sort of comes back to what I said previously about providing different mechanisms and, and ways in which they can choose how they want to approach their strategy for content in their game. Most do that reporting flow and it works really well and they just allow all content, but there is the option for full creation if they want it and then they can be in complete control of that. They could also release more simplified creation tools that don't allow people to bring outside assets into their game. Uh, and that's more your drag and drop tools, so the ability to do it 
is further reduced. So there's a lot of different ways. And, and ultimately, I think the upside that, and the creativity, player engagement and growth that modding drives for these titles will ultimately always outweigh the few bad actors that can be quite easily managed out of the system. And so I think Roblox is the perfect demonstration where if they came from that mindset of uh, worry, they would have never achieved the scale that they did. So you've kind of got to, you know, you've got to put on a new hat when you approach UGC and see this as an opportunity to do something bigger than you presently are, uh, and then just decide what is your strategy for management. Yeah, I agree. And I think, yeah, I definitely agree with your point. Roblox is a very large, very high market cap company. Um, I guess they're not a very old company. So that's why I think they've managed to get rid of some of the previous kind of, if you have vintage lawyers in the building, they'll be like, you're doing what? Uh, whereas I think if you've come from a YouTube generation, you're much more used to it. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Actually, wanted to ask about uh, monetization from a different point of view, which is your site's monetization. I mean, I know obviously you're you're venture funded right now, and you're just sort of scaling up. So I just wanted to ask, like, what is your kind of short, medium, and long term business model for Mod.io? Right now, we're going through a market education phase with UGC, where there's following on again from Roblox's success. There's probably not many studios that didn't have a look at UGC and what it can mean for their current title of games uh, and potentially building towards what their next generation of games, building it as a first-class citizen and an early feature in those titles. So we're, we're VC-backed and uh, you know, have got great backers um, and a really long roadmap um, that we intend to deliver because we understand that there's, there's going to be a phase of market education. Uh, we're not necessarily in a rush to make some of the mistakes that we've seen in the past, the, the Skyrim example. For, and so we want to ensure that uh, we have the capital necessary to deliver on our vision, which is to make UGC much more ubiquitous across the industry, much more accepted, and a business model and a revenue generator that studios can approach and pursue should they choose to do so. So for us, phase one, market education, um, and that's focused across in innovation and just good delivery and building a relationship with the players, the creators and the studios um, and establishing ourselves as the, the thought leaders in the space. And as a result of that, for indie titles um, and smaller titles, Mod.io is an entirely free platform for, to use. Um, for larger titles and uh, AAA titles, especially ones that want custom branding um, and a more white-labeled experience where it's integrated with their community and their single sign-on provider. Um, we charge a nominal fee per um, piece of content downloaded that they can easily measure and track for usage of the service. But ultimately, we want to be a revenue generator um, and a revenue positive venture for studios that, that want to do that. And we do acknowledge that not every studio wants to turn on revenue with mods and they just want to leave it open. But we will provide the functionality and a fully managed solution so studios can almost deploy, use us to deploy Roblox as a service in their game where they can um, explore various monetization mechanisms, whether it's um, step one might be just as simple as the Twitch model where it's patronage and it's sort of just backing creators. Step two might be allowing a curated marketplace of your top content, almost like season passes, just but with you, where player and UGC driven. And then step three might be, all right, full marketplace and, and a much more open system. So that's going to happen over a number of years. Um, and so every conversation we have with studios is different based on their needs, the direction that they're taking. Uh, and that's where the VC um, funded route is, is the right one for us where we're at. 
Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that you're providing for a multitude of different options there, because I do think there's some people who just want their mods to be free, but there's also going to be some people in the future, I'm sure, who think, well, someone spent a really long time on this mod, it would be nice for them to get tips or some kind of payment. So I, I think I think I get it there. The vast bulk of games, um, I would say, definitely do just want mods to be a free feature for their players that they love and they just want that. But there's certainly also a pocket of games that their business model is shifting and they think that it'll lead to more content for their players, better, more diverse content, and they really want to enable it and they want to explore the different ideas. And that's why we're, going to, we're taking a stepped approach and we're going to provide optionality and all package that up. Yeah, and I think also with uh, Game Pass on the rise, you know, it's getting much easier to get your game into uh, to a wider audience with Game Pass. But then you do have the worry, you know, are you generating any additional revenue? Is the, just the Game Pass inclusion fee going to be enough? And that's why people are looking at being slightly more aggressive there. But I also share your feeling that it's really nice to have free mods from the community and it's nice to have other options as well. And it shouldn't be a one thing or the other there. Cool. So I guess uh, I guess we're coming to the, towards the end here, but I just had a, a final question for you, which I'm asking all of our guests, which is just like, I know you don't have a lot of time to play games, but have you been playing any games in the recent or semi-recent past? And if so, which ones have you been playing? So believe it or not, I play an enormous amount of board games. <laughs> I think through the pandemic, the ability to have a really social gaming experience has been really close to my heart. Uh, and there's no more social experience than, than board games because by their nature, they're sort of slower and you can chat while you play them and they're not action and, and necessarily fast moving. So I found them to be a really strong social outlet for myself. Um, and we're playing all manner of games. Just the other night, I did Stone Rage, Nimit, uh, Power Grid's my favorite title of all time from a board game perspective. So play probably I've got 40 plus in my collection. Um, and also play a, play a ton of titles like that. Otherwise, uh, I am also on a similar line when I want to solo play, but I guess online I, I do a lot of Magic the Gathering. Uh, big fan. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good time sink and a perennial. You're always releasing new content. Uh, and, of course, I can't, I can't go past first-person shooters, um, so when I do get the chance, I'm still, I'm still where I was almost many years ago where like Counter-Strike and Chivalry and some of these mods that were created uh, many, many years ago and have now evolved into much more polished versions of the same game. Uh, if I feel like something competitive, I, I do enjoy I do enjoy those. I don't play things like Elden Ring and, and the like uh, that are really that are really punishing. I just don't have um, the time and patience to, to handle that. Yeah, I've actually played uh, six minutes of Elden Ring on Steam, and that was just to see if it works on Steam Deck. And I and I put that in one of my newsletters and had to disclaim that I, I'm also not an Elden Ring player, and six minutes was just for booting up purposes. Watching I'm, I'm, I'm actually... watching people on Twitch is is what I like. So like games like Dead by Daylight and Elden Ring and things, they can be really awesome to watch, uh, but for me, they're kind of <laughs> really daunting to play. So uh, yeah, it's generally where I end up. Yeah, I actually recently recently got in got back into Dicey Dungeons, which I played for like two seconds when it came out. But now I've been playing a lot more, and it's pretty funny because at this point I think I am paying fifteen dollars a month for Game Pass purely to play Dicey Dungeons, which is surely not a good use of my money. But uh, well, that's, I'm really that's liking a, Dicey Dungeons. <laughs> it's almost a digital board game ish type title. So so there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's got a lot of dice in it. Gosh, I, I've been I've been blasting that a lot. But yeah, so, so, so there we go. So thanks again, Scott. It was a delight to have you on the podcast. 
Likewise. Thanks, Simon. Great to chat. Great. Uh, wonderful. And that's all we've got for this installment of the podcast. We'd like to thank Scott for coming on to talk to us. You can find out more about mod.io at the appropriately named website mod.io. And this podcast is made by Game Discover Co, home of newsletters and consulting, and now a podcast around game discovery. Sign up to our newsletter at newsletter.gamediscover.co and upgrade paid to our plus access if you can. You get all kinds of cool extra stuff and our gratitude. And the credits to end things out. Many thanks to our producer, editor and transcriber Alejandro Linares Lopez, theme tune composer Keith Bayless, and all of our subscribers and listeners. And we'll see you back in Game Discovery Land very soon. Yeah.